just sung about the greatness of your faithfulness. And I simply ask that you would be gracious to us in that faithfulness, that you would indeed pour out your Spirit upon us that we might trust in that faithfulness, that we might know you as you are, revealed to us through your Son and given to us by his Spirit. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Please be seated. Well, I found myself asking uh, a question this week, uh, mainly because of the lessons of the day and of the circumstances of one's life. And here was my question. How does God get us to live in the way he created us to live? How does God do that? How does God get us and encourage us to do what he tells us to do? Because those are one and the same thing. How he created us to live is how he tells us how to live. But how does he do that? Now, the how question, I must confess, is one of the major questions of my life. I am drawn to that question. It's not that I don't want to ask the why question about purpose and meaning, or even the what question of content and practicalities, or even the where question of direction and destiny, but I am fascinated by the how question. Because I am more fascinated, not simply with strategy, but with a dynamic within life. How does God do in us, through us, to get us to do what we need to do? If we can grasp that, we might be able to cooperate more with that. That's the question. I found myself posing. I think three of our texts address it. We only have time today to look at two of them. I'm sad about that. We need another hour if we were going to look at the third. Um, maybe some of the time. But I want to start uh, with our Old Testament lesson. You might want to open up your Bibles in Deuteronomy chapter 8, because that's where we are, the first 10 verses of Deuteronomy chapter 8. Uh, and again, the whole book of Deuteronomy is addressing our question, and this text is addressing it in spades. The whole book of Deuteronomy is taking place, we are told, on the edge of the Promised Land. Moses is reiterating to the people of Israel, after the 40 years of wandering, all of the commandments of God, and his intent is that they need to do what he is commanding them to do. That's how he starts off. Here is his, his dilemma. He says, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do. Right? That's his hope. He says, you must not only hear what I'm saying, you must do what I'm saying. And he must do it for a reason, that you may live and multiply. 
Go in and possess the land the Lord swore to give to your fathers. If you do not do these things, says Moses, you will not go in and possess. You will not uh, live and multiply. You will not flourish. And we got to remind ourselves that the commandments of God are not arbitrary things. They are inherent in the created order of things. We must live in a certain way if we are to flourish in this world that He has created us to live in. But if we must do so, we have to choose to do so. And there's a dilemma. Moses has to get the people of Israel and through them us to say, how will I get you to choose what you must do if you are to flourish in this world? Right? And he goes on to tell them. He says this, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That's it. If you are to do the whole commandment, you have to remember the whole way that God has led you these 40 years. That's what he's saying, right? But you not only remember what happened, but why it was happening. He goes on, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Moses is saying, look, you and I have lived 40 years in this wilderness. We have been led by this God who redeemed us out of Egypt, uh, and he has been leading us, and, want, and as he leads us, he is looking for something from us, right? He is leading us in order to humble us, leading us in order to test us, leading us in order to know what is in our hearts and what we will do because of his leading. That's the dynamic of the divine human relationship that Moses is painting here. God leads and he's looking at us saying, how are you being led? We are being led and we say, well, how are you leading? Where is this? It's a divine human relational pattern of life that is established. Uh, and we are to remember the whole way that he led us and to learn something from it. And what is that way? Well, two things stand out for Moses, and these are the two things he says. Verse 3, he says, He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. So he reminds them that for 40 years, folks, you have been fed by the bread of angels. Forty years daily, you have found this manna on the crown. Remember that, right? And the second thing is, your clothing, verse 4, did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. I have been in those deserts. Janice and I were there just back in June. It is horrid. Forty years, and their clothing did not wear out, their feet did not swell. He says, remember, for 40 years, not only did God provide for you, but he miraculously provided for you. 40 years of faithfulness. 40 
years. They are to remember those things, but they are to learn something else through them. And here's the crucial stuff. He says, you, he humbled you, let you hunger, and he fed you with all these good things uh, that your fathers did not know. Why? That you, he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's what you're supposed to learn from being fed for 40 years with manna. He goes on, your clothing did not wear out. Why? So know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Those are the two things that we are to learn as we reflect on what God has done, how God has led us, he says, right? You remember what he did. You remember to reflect on why he did it so that you might know implicitly and tacitly that not only can you trust him, not only is this the God that has uh, created you, but this is the God who loves you like a father and he leads you in that way. That's what you are to know in here. But you can only know that if you remember and reflect on his relational will for you. He says, if you do this, if you learn to trust in this way, know him to be this for you. (laughs) He says, so then you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his way and by fearing him. That's how, Moses says, God will teach you to do what you need to do. He says again, you know that you have been redeemed by this God, that he has rescued you from the powers of evil. He has brought you through the Red Sea. He has formed you for himself. You are to remember how God has led you, what God has done for you. You are to reflect on what God has done for you so that you may learn to trust Him. Because the degree to which you do trust will be the degree to which you will walk with Him. That's the inner dynamic of the text. That's how God gets us to do what we were created to do. It is a wondrous thing when you think about it, and a huge challenge. How do you and I today, reflecting on this text, reflecting with them on their 40 years, and more, reflecting on the entire story of how God has led us, How do you and I embrace this so that this is true for us? Head over to the psalm, Psalm 34. Uh, And I think in this, what I heard from David in this psalm is that this is an illustration of how we are to embrace this truth that Moses teaches us in Deuteronomy. 
Uh, it is a great song, uh, and I want to start in the middle of it uh, and see this. David says, gives you two basic understandings, two basic exhortations. Here they are. He says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And then again, second one, verse 9, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. David says, and he's speaking out of the wisdom tradition of Israel. He's speaking again to his people. This is now the king, right? And he's saying, look, you've got to do two things. You have to commit yourself to two primary things. You have to commit yourself to tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, and you have to commit yourself to living in the fear of this one. You are to commit yourself to worship, and you commit yourself to discipleship. Because those are the two main things that fulfill these two exhortations. This is the place where we taste and see that the Lord is good. It has always been the place where we taste and see that the Lord is good. It is always in the place where God provides the meal for us, the feast for us, the sacrificial system for us that culminates in this death, that culminates in this meal, right? We come to taste and see that the Lord is good by participating in the worship of God's people. Always did, always will. We do this. This is where we taste and see. But also we need to learn to walk in the fear of the Lord, and that is what discipleship is all about, at least for David, and it was for the people of Israel. We don't tend to hear that, but I think we do. Look how he goes on into this uh, psalm. He goes, verse 11, he says, Oh, come now, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. <laughs> David now becomes the teacher of Israel, and he says, look, I need to tell you things. I need to instruct you so that you can actually live this life, that you can actually live in the fear of the Lord. And then he goes on to say, all right, here's the question. What man or woman is there who desires life, loves many days, that he or she may see good? This is the existential question. Uh, to what Moses was teaching in Deuteronomy 8. Who among us does not want to live and live well? Who among us does not want to live and live long and to live the good life, to live the life we were created to live? That's the question. He says every single one of us wants this. Every single one of us. David is coming from our existential place. Moses is saying, here's what God is telling you. They're both coming at the same reality. How do we live the life we were created to live? All right. David goes on and says, look, you want this? Let me tell you how you get it. <laughs> he says, look, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Well, three things, he says. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Three exhortations. He says, take care of your speech, what you say to one another. 
take care of your basic orientation of life, a life of repentance. Seek good, turn from evil. A basic orientation of your life, the life, basic orientation of a life of repentance. And then thirdly, pursue peace, seek peace, the shalom of the Creator, the kingdom of God. And our active lives have to be focused on that activity. You do that, watch your speech, make sure you've made that fundamental orientation, and then pursue it with all that you are and all that you have, and you will live the good life. That's what he's saying. That's the human perspective. Now, why is that so important? He goes on to talk about the divine perspective. He goes this, uh, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. He says, our speech is matched by God's ears who hear, <laughs> right? Our fundamental orientation is matched by God's eyes upon our lives. <laughs> he sees that orientation. And then our pursuit of life, whatever that is, either goes with the face of God or against the face of God. God is going in one direction only. <laughs> Who's going with them? You see the partnership. The human has to do certain things because God is doing those things. And we are to come together in that. And David says, if we do those things, then guess what happens? He says, um, we, the Lord himself, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord will hear and deliver them out of all their problems. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. David is quoting now from a communal conviction of Israel. They have found this to be true about their God and about themselves. And David now is saying, and I know this for myself. It's my personal conviction, and I'm going to teach you how to make it yours. That's what the psalm is all about. That's what he's trying to do. But remember how David made it his own. Go back to the beginning of the psalm. Indeed, go back to the superscription that began the psalm. I'm glad that Jeremiah read that today. Uh, here it is. It says it's the psalm, Psalm 34, is of David. David wrote it. Uh, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Not every psalm is, is given its historical context. This one is. And you can know the story. You can go back into 1 Samuel 21 and 22 and you understand what is happening. David is a young man who has been anointed by Samuel as the next king, but Saul is still in reign. And Saul is going off the deep end, and David has to flee for his life. And the only place he can flee is into the hands of their enemies, sworn enemies, the Philistines. And so he goes from um, the pot into the fire, right? He, he is bad from bad to worse. And he arrives in Gath, 
the headquarters of one of the five cities of Philistines, and he knows he's in big trouble here, more so than he was with Saul, and so he fakes madness. And so they will pity him and then say, get out of here, and he flees from there and into the hill country. That's how the story is told. But hear what David, how David responds to that incident. He goes this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. I want to share this with you, he's saying, right. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And then he tells us why. He says this, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. This poor man, he says, cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. We don't know exactly how it happened, but we can say from David, when he got into that situation with the Philistines, with Abimelech, he was praying like crazy, right? Crying out to the Lord, existential angst. And God heard, he says. God delivered. How? We don't quite know. Maybe God directed him to fake the madness. I don't know what, but David knows that he cried, God answered, and now he is singing his praise. Right? Singing his praise. Those are the facts, but learn again what David learned from those facts. He says, look, I sought the Lord and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. That's again a communal conviction, but now that is David's personal experience. I look to him and my face is radiant because he's looking at me. David experiences what the community has taught for himself. Or again, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his all the troubles. He goes on to say, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Again, that's a communal conviction that now is owned by David. He knows it for himself because he has experienced it for himself. And now he's telling us, he's broadcasting it to anyone who would care to hear. This can be true for you, he says. This could be true for me. It is a wondrous kind of thing. But it says to me, what I learned from this psalm is that we can learn about the communal traditions of trust. We can read the Bible and understand that God has been faithful to our fathers. We know that, we can see that. But it's only to the extent that you and I can truly trust it for ourselves that we will be able to live on the basis of that in our day-to-day -day lives. And it says to me from David is, it is when, especially in the moment of crisis, 
your trust will be exposed. It is in that moment of absolute need, when you cry out, you'll know how firmly you are crying out, how expectantly you are crying out. And then you wait. Will what I have been told about this God come true for me in this moment? That's the moment of crisis. Our faith, our trust will either be strengthened in those moments or weakened. Right? One or the other. But David is convinced that if we simply do what he did, cry out and wait, then God himself will come and answer. It may not be the way you think, but he will show up. And when he does, your trust will explode. And when he does, your ability to walk in the light of that trust will explode, right? Or not, or not. I am, uh, was really touched by this, um, this week, and I, again, listen one more time as to how and what um, we are learning from this. We know we know because God has told us through his word that we must live in accordance with his word because that's the way he's created us to live. There is no other way that will flourish, none, right? But knowing that, we have to do certain things to increase our trust and we need to remember. That's the first thing, to remember, to remember the story that culminates in this life, this death, and this resurrection. We need to remember and reflect on that story of how God has revealed himself, how God has led us through these things. And as we remember and reflect, we are to learn that this God is not only powerful, but he is good. He is utterly trustworthy. He is faithful. And that you and I can know that in our hearts at the core of our being. And we need to know that if we are to live in that partnership with him, if we are to live in the light of his revelation. The deepening of trust is at the core of our life. And it is the crisis, says David, that will reveal that to you, reveal that to me. Do not be afraid of the crises. See it as an opportunity to cry out to the one who is faithful. Cry out with as much trust that you can muster because that's the only trust you've got. <laughs> and when this one answers you, delivers you, then praise him 
for increasing your trust and share your story with those around you. Do what David did. Add his testimony to the testimony of those who preceded him. Because this is how God encourages us to live as he created us to live. To do what he created us to do. May God give us ears to hear. Give us wills to obey. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to ask you just to take a moment and uh, respond quietly in your heart.